we need to talk about ideas, good ones and bad ones. We need to learn stuff about the world. We need an honest, intelligent, thought-provoking and entertaining review of what the hell happened on this planet in the last seven days. We need to sit back and listen to the Iron Fist and the Velvet Glove. Welcome back to you, listener. We're up to episode 162 of the Iron Fist Velvet Glove podcast. It is quarter past seven in the evening on the 28th of August 2018. I am Trevor the Iron Fist. With me as always, Scott the Velvet Glove. G'day Trevor, g'day listeners. How are we all? We're good. Pleased to hear it. And I'm drinking a Stone and Wood Pacific Ale tonight. It's very nice. It's I've never had it before. very good. Mm. Is this what they refer to as product placement? If I... <laughs> Hi everyone, the 12th man 12th Paul. man here, how are y'all? We're angling for a beer sponsorship, we're just, we're just putting forward our bona fides and if you're out there with a craft brewing company looking for a place to, to put some ads, look no further We will do it for free beer actually <laughs> That's right. So, Deliver a carton a week to this address in the gap and we'll be fine mm. Dear listener, this is an Australian podcast. We look at news and politics, changes in our society and culture. We do it every week and we're focused on Australia. We also look internationally, but given the events that's happened in politics in the last week, we're pretty much going to be concerned with most of, mostly Australia this week again. And, uh, and yes, we, we, we might have a few new listeners this week because we've put out a few things on Facebook and we've got a few new likes. So if you're joining us for the first time, welcome. There's a few in-jokes that you'll have to get used to and maybe we're a little bit of an acquired taste. Uh, think of it as the first time you had a beer and you thought, what's all the fuss about? But exactly. after a while, yeah. you really started to like it. So mm. give us a chance and sit back and listen and maybe check out some of the past episodes as well. So uh, we're going to talk about you know, ordinarily... A wide breadth of things and we would normally just launch into some articles and things that we've found in magazines and newspapers and talk about those but we're going to be a little bit self-indulgent this week and talk about uh, stuff we've talked about before and things we've done so uh, not quite our normal episode but bear with us and see how you go so first up when we last spoke uh, Velvet Glove and Twelfth Man. We had a different Prime Minister. <laughs> we sensed that a new one was in the wings, but uh, sure enough, um, Turnbull got rolled. But surprise, surprise, ScoMo came through uh, as the uh, as the un- well seemingly unlikely winner last time we spoke. Exactly. Yeah, I'm not happy that Turnbull was rolled. I did believe that he was the best man for the job. He was the only one that could have actually steered the coalition into a potential victory, although it was looking unlikely. It was still a possibility with him at the helm. You only have to see the latest news poll numbers to know that they've shot themselves in the foot well and truly with this week of self-indulgence, and they have done themselves in. However, I was very, very happy that Peter Dutton didn't get up. That would have been electoral suicide for the coalition. They would have been completely stuffed had he have actually got up. It would have been over for them. And in fact, Dutton would have had trouble holding his own seat. Up there in Dixon, which is on a knife edge, isn't it? One point something percent or something like that. It's not very large. The margin is not very large at all. Mm-hmm. So, you know, he's probably going to lose his seat anyway. 
I think he is the 16th most marginal. I think he's around the 6% mark. Oh, thought, is he? Yeah, I think. Oh, so. I thought he was only down 1%. Mm. Okay. I might have that wrong. I mm. heard someone mention uh, numbers and I thought it was around 1% as well, mm. but could be wrong. Yeah, okay. Mm. Well, if he is, then, you know, I'm yeah. surprised he... Anyway, mm. that's fine. But um, he's he's on shaky ground anyway. So even if he had been elected Prime Minister, there was no guarantee that he was going to win his seat. So that would have been disastrous for him. Um, you sound like you, you wanted them to win. Did I want him to win? No. no <laughs> sound like you wanted the, the Liberal, Liberal Party. The Liberal Party. Oh, no, I don't want them to win. You know. But you don't want the other lot to win I don't win want either. the other, win, other lot to win either. I, I Scott just, was a former member of the Liberal Party. Yeah, I was a former just, member of the Liberal Party. His allegiances are coming through. <laughs> That's why I was so warm to right-wing Tony when he was there, there speaking, you know. So. Incidentally, I spoke to right-wing Tony uh, more than an hour ago. Yeah. And he was delighted that... ScoMo um, had won. Well, <laughs> delighted that Turnbull was gone. And he would have preferred Dutton, but... He would have preferred okay. Dutton? Yes, yes. Bloody hell. Uh, and we'll look at some... He's not called right-wing Tony for nothing. No, but uh, we'll look at the essential report a little bit later, but 56% of Liberal voters would have been happy, I think, with Dutton. So a significant number of Liberal voters really like Dutton. So uh, he's not alone there. Mm. You really think that Dutton's the man. So, Well, no, I've got to disagree with him there. I don't think Dutton's the man at all. Yeah, well... Uh, we'll, we'll get on to that later on. So, But anyway, where I was coming back from all that was I initially said to you, Trevor, I said it was glad it was ScoMo. Mm. I thought he was the pick of them. But I completely forgot about Julie Bishop. Now, what I have read since, I've got to say she was overlooked for the job. She should have been given the job. Mm. She was the person amongst the list of candidates and that sort of stuff when they asked who should be the Liberal leader. She was the person that came out on top in every in every survey. Do, do, do you remember last week I played an excerpt from episode 54 where we were talking about the categorisation of Muslims? Yes, yeah. <laughs> um, I, 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 as a prescient ep- episode, dear listener, because I'm going to play you a little excerpt from episode 54 from a different part of that episode. Oh. And, I think I know what this is, yes. And yeah. dear listener, this this episode was two years and one month ago. So uh, here we go. Just a little clip from episode 54 from just... Oh, hang on. Before you do, yes? who was Prime Minister at the time? You'll find out in the clip. Okay. So here we go. So uh, bear with me and uh, here it is. Um, Scott, I thought it'd be fun if we had some crystal ball predictions. Oh, okay. Mm. Because we've got a new government just sworn in. Yep. In theory, they've got three years to run. And, you know, in theory, in three years' time, Malcolm Turnbull and Bill Shorten will be facing off for another election. And so the question is, uh, a bit of crystal ball gazing, how long is this going to go, this, this parliament, before our next election? And who are the leaders going to be? And who's going to win, Scott? Um, I'm not prepared to put a six-pack on this right no. now because there's a hell of a lot of time to go yet. But uh, I... Uh, who's going to win? I think Turnbull will win. Um, will he still be the leader in three years' time? 
That depends on how nutty the right wing of the Liberal Party actually are. Mm. They could be absolutely insane and they could rock the boat and cause all sorts of problems. Mm. And if they do that, they may well... Yeah, they may well convince enough of their colleagues to oust Turnbull and put Abbott back in, in which case it will be a disaster for the Liberal Party. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think I think that uh, good sense will take over the backbench. I think that they will understand that uh, that their future lies with Turnbull, not Abbott. <laughs> All right, so you're saying Turnbull will be there, Turnbull will be there. You're saying it's going to go three years... I think it'll go two and a half to three years, okay. yeah. Okay, and you reckon he'll win? I reckon he'll win, yeah. Okay. I reckon that this is this is going to be too much tension in this parliament. Like, it's such a narrow majority and um, the characters involved are all too highly strung for stability and I reckon it's going to blow up at some stage. So, right. So I'm going for two-year term. I reckon Malcolm will be gone... And you heard it here first, folks. <laughs> Julie Bishop, put her in. She'll be the she'll be the leader, and uh, she'll face off against Bill Shorten, who will win. There you go. There's a there's a prediction. Two years time. Why do you think uh, Bishop will be the leader? Uh, I think that Turnbull will be thrown out by the right wing elements, and. Uh, and she, and she, she's very clever. She survived as deputy under all these different leaders. And yeah, I, I know she's survived as deputy under all these different leaders, and she's never wanted. She's never made the talk for the top job or anything like that. Mm. Yeah, mm. I, I think that. Um, I think she's comfortable in her job now. Mm. Well, I don't think yeah. she, I don't think she'll necessarily be the one pushing for it. But they'll knife Turnbull, and it'll fall in her lap. Put it that way. Okay. Yeah. So we'll, we'll have to wait and see. Yeah. Oh, pretty close. You were you pretty were, close. You were close. I was out by a month. Yeah, exactly. You were saying you were saying that you were saying the parliament was only going to last two years. Mm. Well, that's all in the lap of the gods now. You know, where you, you could you you could argue that Morrison could use Turnbull's resignation as a trigger for an election, mm. Mm. which would be probably a cynical move but it's also very sensible because as my better half said he said he should go now because then he can't be blamed for the loss he can then possibly he could then argue he could then have a strong argument to retain the position as opposition leader he says particularly if Dutton and Abbott lose their seats which is a possibility Abbott could lose his seat because you've got to remember that it was only Turnbull's personal intervention that saved him yeah Warringah almost fell to the Labor Party Mm. So, you know, and what we've already seen from Abbott and that sort of stuff, he's got no love for ScoMo either. So ScoMo may well say, well, fuck you, buddy. I'm sorry, pardon for the language, mm. but you may well say, tell him to get stuffed and say, well, I've got other I've got other seats that need saving ahead of yours. So I, I think, I think uh, Morrison will try and buy as much time as he can, but we're both... <laughs> Aware of the possibility of the right wing going crazy and we causing were. a blow up, and, we were. Yeah, and there it happened. It so, did. So. I mean, I was clearly wrong where I said that I thought Turnbull would still be the leader in three years. Mm. Clearly, I was wrong. Mm. But you know, I honestly did not believe the Liberal Party's backbench would 
take over the collective insanity of the right and that they would push for the for the spill. Mm-hmm. You know, it's the, the incredible part of this, of this, as I was saying before, is that the right is not happy with Scott Morrison because he's not right-wing enough. Yeah. And this is a guy who is clearly a neoliberal in terms of economic policy, yeah. and he's an evangelical nutbag who's got quite conservative values in terms of he's against, you know, equal same marriage, gay, marriage, same-sex yeah. marriage and stuff. So he's, he's a long, long way to the right, and he's still not right-wing enough for these characters. Mm. So... Um, I posted a thing on Facebook where a lot of the marginal seats are actually held by um, Morrison supporters. So I think if they lose a, a, you know, a good number of seats at the next election, he'll lose a lot of his supporters and uh, it'll be on again. They won't be satisfied. They'll just keep going. Till no, it, it, they won't be satisfied. I mean, mm. like, this is where my better half said that he wanted to see Dutton win. So that he could then lose, and that would take them. That would take the Liberal Party down and destroy the right wing at while they're at it. But the right wing have already started branch stacking in Victoria. It's only a matter of time before they start branch stacking in New South Wales, Queensland, South Australia, everywhere. They've already done it in Western Australia. So this is not the end of them. This is their beginning. They might get government once. After that, they'll be out on their asses after one term and they'll be out for a generation. But they will say at that time, the reason we've, we're losing is we're not right-wing enough, so we need even more right-wing. Is what exactly, say. that's what they'll do yep. and they oh. will make no sense whatsoever and then they'll lose and then it'll be over mm. and then they will be out for a generation. And, and we all assume that you know people who spend their entire lives immersed in politics should be able to read the electorate and read what they want. But clearly, they're living in bubbles, aren't they? They are. Absolutely, they are. You know, th- if this- the right wing really think the Australian general public want a right wing government, they're delusional, aren't mm-hmm. they? I mean, take one of the classic uh, sort of points is same-sex marriage. And in Tony Abbott's electorate, 70, 75%. 75% of the electorate voted in favour of same-sex marriage. So that's one of their key planks of their conservatism. Mm -hmm. But they just ignore that now and they'll move on to energy and and other things. You know, I was very pleased to see that, uh, what's her name, Conchetta Veravanti-Wells. She Mm. was the... uh, Not immigration. uh, The civil... uh, Pacific Affairs. No, pleased to see her do something. I, no, can't I was pleased. Imagine. I was pleased to see her leave the cabinet, and oh, right. she wasn't. I... She wasn't brought back in. Citizenship minister is what she was. Right. And you know, this is how delusional they are, Paul. You've, you've hit the nail right on the head when you call them delusional because she used her parting address from cabinet to bag same-sex marriage. Now, clearly, she's living in a debate that was mm. settled months ago. Mm. And she won't move on from it. So she's clearly an idiot. She's a social conservative. Absolutely, she She, is, yeah. She seems to think that there are enough people out there in voter land that are also social conservatives like her that they would support the right-wing takeover. And this is why the Australian Christian lobby appears to have a much bigger footprint than what it actually does Mm. because they are very vocal. Yeah. And, and they're cashed in, up. And they are cashed up. They're very vocal. They're cashed up and they're in the ears of the politicians. 
And that's why we've got to we've got to really mm. actually we should put in a plug for the national secular lobby here. We've got to get them cashed up so they can go forward to have someone down there permanently in the ear of the ear of the bastards. Anyway, but the other interesting aspect is why they passed uh, Julie Bishop over. And look, I read an interesting article this afternoon. I think it was by Annabel Crabb in in which. She, she outlined what Julie Bishop has put up with for a number of years, and that is being treated as a very competent, you know, senior minister, but certainly in the minds of the male cabinet members, certainly not leadership material. Yeah, but foreign minister's easy. Is it? When, when she was shadow treasurer, yeah, she, she was badly. terrible. Yeah. It's easy to be a foreign minister, mm. you just swan around. You don't really have to make hard decisions. So there was, it's, it, it's, it's a good show pony sort of role, but there's tough decisions are not required. Exactly. And there was a um, very interesting article I read six or seven months ago when there was the first lot of leadership speculation around. And they asked, you know, they were talking about Julie Bishop being the foreign minister. And they said, the thing about being a foreign minister is you never actually have to make a sausage. And that's, a, that's a reference to the, um, that's a reference to Bismarck saying that the legislative process is like making a sausage. You uh, just don't want to see how it's done. Okay. You know, so, oh, right. Yeah. 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 That makes so, sense. And, and that's what, that, that's what, he, that's what he, she was dead right. She doesn't have to put through very much legislation at all. There's no argy-bargy in the, in the back rooms to get things across the line. Yeah. And there's very little impact on the, on the voter. So the exactly. voter can sort of... Just ignore her largely. Yeah, it's ideal for her, but in a tough role, Look, she's I, not that good. I have to say, I think she did a passable job as foreign minister. Yeah, but if you look back through the records, what she did as shadow treasurer was terrible. Mm. Yeah, so um, it was very bad. Yeah, hey, we're fortunate uh, in all the turmoil. I I managed to get some audio of the uh, the Dutton and the um, Abbott sort of room after the shock decision. And uh, if <laughs> This you sit, should be juicy. It's good. So sit back and I just managed to get this recording, so I'll just play this now. So, Hey! What's this lying around shit? Well, what the hell are we supposed to do, you moron? War's over, man. Wormer dropped the big one. What? Over? Did you say Over? Nothing is over until we decide it is. Was it over when the Germans bombed Pearl Harbor? Hell no! Germans? Forget it, he's rolling. It ain't over now. Because when the going gets tough... The tough get going! Who's with me? Let's go! Come on! Yeah, that was Tony Abbott. He's he's not giving up. No, he's not giving up. No, <laughs> you know you, you can you can just tell when the you can tell the bastard's lying because his lips were moving. Mm. But um, you know how he said that nonsense. He said that the, the age of the political assassination is behind us now. Mm. You know, if he was telling the truth, which I doubt that he was, but if he was telling the truth, then what he was saying was, well, I've dealt with Turnbull now. It's over. It, there's got to be no more assassinations because we've got ScoMo running things. Mm. But I don't believe him. I honestly think that a man that is that delusional, who lives in planet right, who actually believes Ray Hadley has the has the has the has the, the pulse of the people, you know. Oh, he was clearly angry that Scamo won. So he was, yeah, absolutely, most, yeah, incredible. I, I've also got some 
uh, a bit of audio from the Labor Party room uh, immediately afterwards. I'll just play a bit of that for you as well. Uh, find this now. Another one bites the dust. Another one bites the dust. And another one gone. And another one gone. Another one bites the dust. Hey, hey, gonna get to do. Another one bites the dust. I'd just like to say, it wasn't all that long ago that that's what the Liberals could have been playing about Labor Party Prime Ministers. I was just going to say that the staff in Parliament House have that available for each party on a regular basis, and they just trot it out, and when they hear a party's on, they just grab that one for them. <laughs> hey, uh, uh, the Iron Fist Velvet Glove Secular Index is finished for the moment. Well, it's complete, or it's... it's uh, we filled in the last remaining members. Now all we've got to do is after the next election, we just got to grab the new members and we've got to fill their details in. So, Correct. Yeah. So I did a little bit of statistical analysis and, um, well, what you find is actually a, a lot of these parliamentarians, when you Google their names, there's nothing on them. Like it's surprising how little some of these have done, particularly the Labor ones who have just worked in some sort of union job or something like that and really you just can't find anything on them so a lot of just neutral fives in that case for people where we couldn't find anything but the liberal party overall was a 4.18 and the people who signed the signatures and that was the great part about this whole fiasco was the actual signatures on the on the petition so we knew who was putting the hand up for a change of leadership no but that was very interesting because warren inch he actually signed that petition But then afterwards voted against the change. Yes. He wasn't he didn't want the change. He just voted he just he signed the petition to bring the leadership ballot on, but then when the vote came in the party room he voted against it. Mm. So so what we've got here is that the people who signed the uh, petition, their secular rating was three point seven two, and the ones who did not sign, the average rating was four point five three. So it was clearly the non secular religious nutbags who were within the Liberal Party who were signing that petition. So I did a little chart on that, and that got some good traction in Facebook, and um, so that was good. (laughs) We upset one guy, didn't we? Uh, Yes. Something or other. Yeah, Yeah, what did that guy write? (laughs) Ah, He... uh, he said that he said that Australia's Australia's a Christian nation and our laws are based on the Ten Commandments. Yes. And I thought to myself, yeah, no, they're not. <laughs> and then I just, I was about to reply, and I thought, no, bugger it, I won't. And then sort of somebody had come back in and basically said what I'd said, you know, said what I wanted to say that they, if you take the laws that you've got on the books and that sort of stuff, you take up about two and a half of the Ten Commandments. Yeah. You know? Actually, I boosted that post, and so a lot of uh, characters who don't know our podcast. Uh, saw it and one of the comments from a guy called daryl was who dreamed up this ifvg index question mark serious delusion going on here and a guy replied saying wayne replied saying some nut job probably got a government grant to study and write a paper on this most likely kept them employed at our expense for a few years (laughs) oh that's funny well, if that's, if there is a government grant that we can apply for, I'd be yeah. more than happy to apply for it. You know? <laughs> it's a bit of 
become a bit of a cliche, though, hasn't it? That any sort of weird, sort of useless uh, study going on is uh, a result of a government grant. Are you saying that the IFEG secular index is, is a no, weird, I'm, useless study? No, 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 no. I'm not suggesting that, as you know. I'm right. just suggesting that that's a sort of you know easy sort of assumption to make for anyone these days. Yes, yeah, but that was just funny that. Uh, that you yeah, know, funny. without any exploring of, of it, they just came to that assumption that we were some sort of <laughs> on the payroll of the government to produce that index. That was funny. Yeah. It was very funny. Mm. Right. Uh, what else we got here? Um, so we've been through a number of prime ministers and leaders in recent times now, and we are a bit of a laughing stock of the world. We're we're turning into another Italy. You know, there was a point there where Italian governments seem to be churning over every three months and we're sort of giving a similar vibe in that. Do you know, I really take exception to that. Okay. I mean, why, why should we give a stuff what other countries think of our system? And in fact... I'd like to go into bat for, for more leadership changes. <laughs> right. yeah. we, haven't had, we haven't had enough. I mean, what would, you know, if you, had your, if you had a choice between our system and, you know, a new prime minister every 12 months or communist China where the, the premier is currently ensconced for life, which would you choose? Very good, 12th man, because I was going to give the comparison of the United States where... Even They're the stuck States. with that buffoon for yeah, four years. That's right. And, and they, potentially another four after that. And they can't get rid of him. Even an impeachment needs a two-thirds majority of the Senate. So um, and then, any of the people complaining want to mount an argument that any of these leaders were worth more than 12 months in the job? Yeah, look, I think... <laughs> I, th- I think our, our, our commentators and our, our media people, I think they need to take a step back from this, uh, you know, carrying this line that we're the laughing stock. Who gives a damn what other people think of our system? If it's working for us, and I would argue that more flexibility is better than not enough flexibility. You know, too much flexibility is better than not enough flexibility mm. in terms of who is the leader. I'm all for... Lots of flexibility in politics myself. Mm-hmm. Yep. yep. What do you guys think? Well, I tend to agree with you. However, I think that the flexibility has been abused by the right wing of the Liberal Party. You know, this, was, this, was, this had Abbott's fingerprints all over. This was just Abbott getting his revenge on, on Turnbull yeah. for taking the job off him in 2009. Look, I suppose inevitably it's going to, you know, you're going to get a few shit fights along the way that look like a total waste of time and everybody's energy. But it's still, to me, there's a strength in that flexibility. There's a strength in that uh, capacity for if there's a groundswell of discontent with the leadership, turf them out. Why not? You know, better than being stuck with some shithead that, you know, that you don't like for five or ten years. Yeah, I can understand that. I can... I can possibly almost agree with you yeah mm. you know i've always got a bit of a soft spot for the american system i think that if we you know if you can't uh what, what part of the american system have you got a soft spot for well just the whole electing a president that can appoint a cabinet and that sort of yeah. stuff from outside of the judiciary oh, the, the legislature i think should be completely separate from the executive form of government really mm. absolutely oh, that's so i would actually I would actually argue that if we're going to become a republic that wants a democratically elected president, which appears to be what we want, then 
I think we should just import the American system. Oh, my God. Oh, no. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> Who did you invite? <laughs> the Velvet Glove is... is <laughs> what? <laughs> you know, it was He's quite... the shark. No, it was quite a good system up until... Yeah, up until Trump. It was probably quite a good system up until Trump. Because, you know, although George W. was an idiot and that sort of stuff, he was a rational idiot and that sort of thing that could be relied upon to genuinely look after the democracy and that sort of thing, whereas Trump doesn't. Look, in in theory, it's good to have a separation of powers. So you've got the legislature, the executive and the judiciary. And ideally, those three are separate. In our system, the legislature, which is the lawmaking body is deeply connected with the executive, who is the administrative body. So, you know, the cabinet comes out of the legislature. So they're not that separate in a sense. They come from the same place. The judiciary is definitely separate. So Mm. what you're right in saying is that the Americans at least, uh, they've got judiciary separate, they've got the legislature separate, as in Congress and the Senate, and they've got the executive separate because the president is outside of the legislature and employs all sorts of people as part of his cabinet. So quite correct. Separation's good. The only difficulty that's becoming apparent is perhaps there's too much power for the president and he can just seemingly ignore a lot of what the legislature does. Yeah, absolutely. And, and I, is it almost a law unto himself if he chooses to ignore uh, maybe customs and, um, yeah, custom customary sort of procedures that most law-abiding presidents would normally observe, but he chooses not to. Mm. So that if you've got a separation of powers, but you've provided way too much power in the hands of the president, then you've got a problem. Yeah, and that is why you'd have to, you know, you don't just import the system as it stands now. You bring it in, you say, right, what are the bits we like? What are the bits we don't like? Let's knock back the bits we don't like and we beef up the bits we do like. I can understand. And and I do think we've got to get rid of their Bill of Rights. (laughs) I can understand the, the idea that the president has the power to bring in talented, smart people into his uh, into his cabinet. But at the same time, our system has the strength that people who make it into the cabinet do a kind of apprenticeship and they learn how the system, how laws are made. You know, they learn the whole process during that apprenticeship before they reach cabinet. Yeah, but you, and, you, can, have, you can have people still get apprenticed and that sort of thing, and then they get called into the cabinet later. But then you get people like Trump, you get people like Reagan. Yeah, who you know, just picked who anyone are, they wanted, yeah. You know, political amateurs, and mm. well, know, maybe what you they do can wreak havoc. Maybe what you do then after that is you you then look at the percentage votes for the president. And you say, right, well, which you know the Liberal Party won the majority of the votes, therefore they get the majority of this majority of the cabinet. The Labor Party came second; they got the they get the second numbers coming into the cabinet, and then you get the Greens making yeah. up the balance. And then after that, you say, right, you then say to the parties, right, you choose your cabinet members now. Mm. You know, and then the then the president appoints the appoints the appoints the uh, positions. What, what that a cabinet take. made up of a mixture of absolutely yes, it right. That's does, not going to work. It will work if you the, force the bastards to work together. They will work together. 
How do you force oh, them? You force well, them by not, locking them in a room and you say to them, no, you, you've got to get along. That's not, that's, they'll be just backstabbing each other. Yeah. Nothing will get done. I mean, it doesn't even work yeah. when it's just one party yeah. in the same That's right. Yes, room. that's right. How would Be of little possibly? faith. <laughs> okay, well, that's a topic for another time. Exactly. would be yes. uh, some sort of... Uh, new constitution for Australia somehow adopting mm. a better separation of powers, but without giving too much power to yeah one person one particular. No, group. you can't do that. Mm. Mm. Yep, I've got a link here to an article from the Conversation, and this one uh, I'll read bits of it. Says the Liberal Party seems to be falling for Balmain basket weavers syndrome. <laughs> this is what Paul Keating called Labor members who put ideological conviction ahead of electoral success. So um, what they're saying is that the Labor Party used to have a problem where um, potential for conflict was baked into the organisational structure that gave party bodies outside of Parliament power over policy directions of the parliamentarians. So this is sort of historically in the Labor Party the Labor Party machine could tell the parliamentarians what the policy would be. And the machine came up with all sorts of crazy basket-weaving schemes because it wasn't their job or their neck on the line because they had a secure job. So that made our Labor Party unelectable. But according to this article, Gough Whitlam solved that problem by increasing the power of the Labor parliamentarians... uh, to introduce middle-of-the-road policies that win Australian elections. And the article is saying that uh, for months now, Liberals have been unhappy with Malcolm Turnbull and really they're introducing crazy ideas which are just going to alienate the party from any sort of electoral success and makes the point that these right-wingers are, for example, uh, they're so conservative they feel that the marriage equality debate needs to be rekindled, but in Tony Abbott's seat, 75% are in favour of it. So they're just completely out of touch with the true feelings of their electorate, and if they continue in this vein, they're going to make themselves unelectable for years to come. And that seems to be quite likely, I think. Yeah. Well, particularly if... If Dutton gets up, they'll be over, you know. Yeah. Um, so, do you think they'll um, keep Scomo beyond the next uh, electoral defeat? No, probably not. No. As soon as it's. Well, are they going to lose? Here's the question. I was speaking to a mate of mine, um, and I said, "Well, what do you think of all that?" Uh, there's no way you could vote Liberals now, could you? He said, oh, well, I'm not voting for Shorten. You know, I, I, what do you mean? He said, oh, I'm, you know, I'm voting for the party that's for small business. I've got a small business and I'll vote for the party that's for small business. So, yeah, there you know, was, don't be so sure s- that this is the death knell of... it. It's <laughs> not the death knell of the Liberals yet, but if the right wing does take over, then it will be over for the Liberals. You know, I know there's a lot of small business owners out there that would be taking that line, but considering the largesse that the Liberals have proposed to give to very large companies in the form of tax cuts, that should be a very loud wake-up call to all the small business owners out there to think to themselves, well, they're not interested in me. 
But there the, are the, those well, they've, people. They've sold the idea that the Liberal Party is the party of small business. I know. They've, so they've, oh, they've I've got a small business, I've got a cafe, I've got a restaurant, I've got an internet yeah. business, oh, I should be voting Liberal. They've sold that, but mm. that's not going to last forever. It will, it will die off. Well, mm. it hasn't died off yet. No, it hasn't died off yet. But you know, Albanese was the one that said that they've got to be that the Labor Party's got to be more business friendly, and I agreed with yeah. him. He's right. Yeah. You know, I just disagreed with him on his high speed rail obsession. But so Turnbull that's... was apparently so much more popular than Shorten, <clears throat> and yet they only won by one seat. Mm. So you know, what chance does Scomo have? Well, that's exactly right. Scomo's finished. Yeah, the, the margin is so small; it seems unlikely. I'm very unlikely. Yeah. So even if things were going swimmingly well. Yeah. Uh, and then of... once they lose, then the Abbott forces will gather together, whether it's Dutton or somebody else, and put up a new right winger and, yeah. and look. The, the shadow cabinet, Kevin <laughs> Andrews, they would been <laughs> they would been cracking champagne uh, yeah. the other night. Abbott himself. Mm. Look, look, don't feel sorry for Malcolm Turnbull because, after all, he knifed Brendan Nelson. So, yeah, I know he knifed so, Brendan Nelson, but you know Nelson was not Nelson was falling over himself and all that sort of thing. Yep. And, you know, when, when Abbott won that leadership ballot, he only won it by one vote. Okay, over Nelson. Over, over, Turnbull. over, over, over Turnbull. It was only by yep. one vote. So, so, so let's, let's just go through briefly the recent history. So John Howard in power for uh, 12 years. Yeah. Yep. Rudd won. Brendan Nelson, opposition leader. Knifed by Turnbull. Uh, Turnbull... Knifed by Abbott, who won by one vote. Had an election. Abbott defeats Rudd. And uh, Gillard. No, let me just know. Gillard Gillard took over from Rudd. Yes, in the middle of his prime ministership. Exactly. Yeah. Gillard won the... Gillard didn't win the next election. She led a minority government backed up by two former nationals. No, no. Gillard was the prime. She minister. was the prime minister. Yeah, yes. but that's what. Yes, she won with the support of those two nationals and yes. the, well, there were th- and the Labor the, the and the, the, the Green. New England. Yes, yeah, yeah. So, so, so Gillard knifed Rudd, and then Rudd knifed Gillard, mm. and then Abbott defeated Rudd. Yes, and after Abbott defeated Rudd, Turnbull knifed Abbott, mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> and now we've got. Uh, uh, Dutton knifing Turnbull, but somehow Morrison coming through the middle and yeah. taking the taking well, the whole thing. Yes. So this, don't feel sorry for Malcolm Turnbull, where he was talking about, oh, it's <laughs> terrible what's happened. But you know, he's he's knifed people left, right, and centre. Yeah, but what did you want way. him to do? Did you want him to sit on his hands while while Abbott trashed the Liberal brand? Yeah, and then you know, did you want him just to take the leader of the opposition afterwards? Because that's where they were headed with that yeah. 2014 budget, which Abbott's bloody fingerprints were all over. That's where they were headed. They were headed for electoral defeat. Yeah. You know. Yeah. Okay, let me get that straight again. So Turnbull knifed Nelson and then Abbott knifed Turnbull. Meanwhile, Gillard knifed Rudd, then Rifed, no, <laughs> Rudd knifed Gillard. Then Abbott won the election, and then Turnbull knifed Abbott, and then Morrison's come through in the last few days. Oh boy, it's it's. it's Do you good. suppose Morrison saw so, that coming? So, well, if he was listening to the Ibis Velvet Glove podcast two oh. years ago, he would have known that something was going to happen. 
So there you go. Yeah, it depends. So he he could be, you know, one of the loyal listeners. We just don't know. Could be. It's unlikely. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You never know. Scamo might be a closet listener. Mm. He might be a closet secularist too. Exactly. Doubt yeah. it. Well, yeah. you can still be a believer and believe in secularism, but he doesn't. Uh, but his mm. recent statement, of course, uh, shows that he doesn't have a clue what secularism is. Well, that was his recent statement. That was from his. It was from his speech. His main speech. Major yes, speech. Major speech. Two thousand seven. We'll yes. get to that. We'll get to what sort of um, prime minister we've got in our hands here. But just quickly, Central Report has come out with some uh, statistics. They've done some surveys. Two party preferred now, according to a Central Report, it would be. Fifty-five percent Labor and forty-five percent Liberal National. So that'd be a solid trouncing. So whether that comes through or not, and just don't forget that once the Labor Party wins, the Catholics will be back on the gravy train again, and they're going to get overfunded for their schools. Well, they're going to get overfunded now because they've swapped the education minister. Birmingham's out. I know Birmingham's out. TN's in. TN's in. Who's going to give in to them? Yes. Yeah. So that's that's already going to happen. Do you approve of the leadership change? 56% of liberal national voters approved of the liberal change of the of the leadership change. So there we go. They're happy. Uh, um, here was a question. The leadership change makes no difference to the liberal party's ability to govern Australia. The total population 48% agree. Uh 35% disagree. Uh, the Liberal Party is divided and no longer fit to govern Australia. 57% agree. So, I don't know how you can get that say, those two answers uh, from the same group. But um, And best leader of the Liberal Party, um, total across all of the voters, would have been Julie Bishop at 23%. So she had good popular support. Mm. Absolutely. Outside the party. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, outside the party, but that's who she's got to appeal to. You've got, you know, the, the even within the party, amongst Liberal National voters, she was twenty five percent, and Scott Morrison was twenty two. Mm. So she mm. was the most popular. Exactly, and that's why she should have been given the gig. Mm. You know, mm. um, and according to this, who do you think would make the better Prime Minister out of Scott Morrison and Bill Shorten, and thirty nine percent. Scott Morrison, 29% Bill Shorten. People still, really? yeah, according to Essential, people really hate Bill Shorten. Well, I mean, I can understand why, but still mm. in all, it seems to me that against SCOMO, you'd think you would be doing better than that. No, according to this Essential poll. So there we go. He's not without a chance. Give him nine months. Frightening. Mm. It is very frightening, actually. It yeah. is really scary, actually. He'll be working very hard to create a favourable uh, image of himself, of course. Well, he's already got that sort of favourable image. Like, he's already got that daggy dad persona and that sort of thing that mm. people always love. But I can't see him getting up. Yeah, I dare say some people see him as quite wholesome, don't they? Mm. Possibly. Well, let's, what sort of Prime Minister have we got? Let's talk about him. And you've mentioned a few times his maiden speech. And <laughs> I'll quote a little bit from his speech here. This is from 2008, 14th of February. I'll paraphrase what he's saying. I turn now to the most significant influence on my life, my family and my faith. 
growing up in a Christian home, I made a commitment to my faith at an early age and have been greatly assisted by the pastoral work of many dedicated church leaders, in particular the Reverend Ray Green and Pastors Brian Houston of Hillsong fame Mm -hmm. and Lee Coleman. My personal faith in Jesus Christ is not a political agenda. A bit further on he said, Australia is not a secular country. It is a free country. This is a nation where you have the freedom to follow any belief system you choose. Secularism is just one. It has no greater claim than any other on our society. As a US Senator Joe Lieberman said, the Constitution guarantees freedom of religion, not from religion. I believe the same is true in this country. Fuck! And that part scared the bejesus out of me. Goes on. So what values do I derive from my faith? My answer comes from Jeremiah chapter 9, verse 24. I am the Lord who exercises loving kindness, justice and righteousness on earth. For I delight in these things, declares the Lord. That sounds very political to me. This is in his maiden speech. From my faith, I derive the values of loving kindness justice and righteousness, to act with compassion and kindness, acknowledging our common humanity and to consider the welfare of others. May Christ have mercy on us all. (laughs) (laughs) Goodness, Jesus. The Constitution guarantees freedom of religion, not from religion. Really? He's made in speech. Yeah, he clearly doesn't understand what secularism means. Well, well, he doesn't respect it. No, he clearly doesn't respect it. He don't have freedom from religion, according to... Goodness knows what he's going to do with this Ruddock report when it comes out. Yes, that's a damn good point, because at least under Turnbull, they would have had a... He probably... He was probably wanting to bury it because it's been sitting on his table for so bloody long, but I reckon Morrison's going to take it and run with it. It's, it's frightening. Yeah. Run with it down the backyard and bury it. Well, one would hope so, but I don't think he's going to. You never know. You know, it strikes me that perhaps they haven't released it because he's actually come out and said, well, there is no problem with freedom of religion. Because yeah. <laughs> we don't know what the report's going to tell us. No, we don't. Other things about Scott Morrison, he's economically liberal and socially conservative. He was just one of ten Liberal MPs who abstained from voting the same-sex marriage vote. Um, he has consistently voted against tobacco plain packaging. Really? A price on carbon and increasing Aboriginal land rights. Uh, he's supported many key conservative flagship issues such as decreasing funding to the SBS and the ABC. So he's consistently voted against tobacco plain packaging. For goodness sake, that's the easiest thing to... That's the easiest thing in the world to actually support, yeah. isn't it? Yeah. Morrison can be conservative and hardline, but he is arguably far more flexible than, say, Peter Dutton or Tony Abbott. I mean, this guy is right-wing, and he's not right-wing enough for them. Oh, and he is a hardcore neoliberal. So there's a link to an article there from the conversation that says mm. that sort of stuff. And what else have we got here to tell you about... Um, 
Scott Morrison is... Prosperity Christianity and neoliberalism, mm. match made in heaven. Yes. Can, can I just dissent a little bit? I'm, mm. I'm not sure that that's an accurate um, definition of right-wing, to be honest. He is definitely very socially conservative, but right-wing generally in political science means, you know, highly nationalistic and authoritarian, you know. I mean, right-wing is, 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 is authoritarianism, isn't it? Um, is Morrison no, really authoritarian? It can, in, an, in a Western context, right-wing could mean um, free market rather than authoritarian, uh, libertarian rather than authoritarian. Yeah, look, it's I, just I not thought. my understanding of right-wing. I know, but, but I know people context, throw the term around a lot, yeah. but I think people conflate right-wing with what is really just social conservatism, and, and I think that describes him. I think, though, you find now neoliberal economic trickle-down policies just go always hand-in-hand with the social conservatism. Yeah, I'm just so, not sure right-wing is, is an accurate uh, description yeah. of it. But certainly he's, he's a social conservative, and that's what I uh, don't like about him. I don't mm. think he's particularly authoritarian. I think mm. he's just okay, extremely you go social, conservative. Social values right-wing, mm. economics right-wing. Mm. I don't know. But what does that mean, right-wing economics? Yeah. Well, a left-wing economics would be... Um, Market regulation and mm. and a, an adjustment to distribute income from the rich to the poor mm. would be left wing. Yeah. So, but right wing economics would be more like lots of market manipulation by the plutocracy, wouldn't it? No, not necessarily. It, it on the face of it, they would argue it's free market, but in practice, mm. it's often a regulated market that benefits those in power exactly yeah yeah Yeah. so you know where you know governments do uh, you know defense contracts that make you know billions of dollars for for, for 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 submarine manufacturers exactly yeah Yeah. um some more to tell you about scott morrison there's an uh, article from the aim australian independent media network and uh it talks about scott morrison's christianity and it says that um, he's quite open about being a long-standing member of Horizon Church, a Pentecostal Christian faith affiliated with the Australian Christian churches, the Australian branch of the Assemblies of God denomination. Uh, Mr Morrison has been involved with this church for many years, so presumably he agrees with them. Um, and what... Uh, does the Hillsong Church believe in, uh, what they do believe in is known as prosperity Christianity or what we've referred to as the prosperity gospel. According to Wikipedia, this is a religious belief among some Christians who hold that financial blessing and physical well-being are always the will of God for them and that faith, positive speech and donations to religious causes will increase one's material wealth. In other words, if you're rich and healthy, that's God's will. And if you're poor or sick, then that's God's will too. It's your own fault for not believing in the right things or giving enough money to the church. (laughs) Uh, I had a bit of a chuckle when I read that. Maybe Hillsong doesn't believe in it. Well, a strong hint that they do comes from the title of a book written by the very same pastor, Brian Houston, whose great assistance Morrison acknowledged in his maiden speech. 
It's called, this is the title of Brian Houston's book, You Need More Money, Discovering God's Amazing Financial Plan for Your Life. (laughs) (laughs) It's like they're treating their faith as a cosmic cash machine, isn't it? So this article says, what that means is that the former treasurer and now Prime Minister couldn't care less about poor people because it's their own fault. The rich are blessed, the poor are not. It doesn't matter if Pastor Bon Homming is sitting beside him or not. We know what Morrison believes because it's what he practices. And what he practices is a defence of wealth and an attack on the poor. Company tax cuts, robo-debt, small government, deregulation, a shrinking tax base, an enthusiastic embrace of the whole panoply of trickle-down economics have been the hallmark of his time as Treasurer. And will... Uh, no doubt be over his time as Prime Minister. Uh, that's a bit of a summary of what we're facing with ScoMo. He's not a nice man at all. Well, he's probably very nice to his friends and his family. But, yeah, yeah as you say, it, it it shows what his worldview is. And mm. as you say, it's this idea that, you know, God's in control and if you're if you're doing all right, that's because God wants you to. And if you're not, that's because God thinks you don't deserve it. See, that's what my better half said on Saturday morning. We go out for a bike ride every Saturday morning. And he said to me, he said, because uh, I happened to say something like, oh, as much as I like ScoMo, I just can't vote for him. And he basically fell off his bike. He says, how the hell could you vote for him? The man's a happy clapper. He says, no, even worse than that, he's a corporate happy clapper. He actually believes that God wants you to be wealthy. You know, so... And he probably thinks that God wants wealthy corporations to be wealthy as well. Exactly. Hence the big uh, tax breaks for big corporations. Mm. Anyway, it makes uh, it makes absolutely no sense whatsoever. So I think I think Trevor's right. I think that the um, that this is just the right wing flexing their muscle. They couldn't stomach another Turnbull in a dress, so they couldn't go with Bishop, despite the fact that Bishop had the better numbers. You know, and she was clearly the clear choice that would have saved the furniture, but they've let her go. You know, it makes absolutely no sense whatsoever. So I think Trevor's right. You know, you've got to look at the personalities behind the porch, and it was clearly right wing nutbags that were doing it. Just back to his maiden speech where he said, uh, let's just find it here. From my faith, I derived the values of loving kindness justice and righteousness, to act with compassion and kindness, acknowledging our common humanity and to consider the welfare of others. This is the two-faced bullshit of these religious nutters because (laughs) on Nauru with the uh, illegal boat people, they were told one day, hey guys, we've got something to show you. Come in and watch this movie. And they all thought they were going to be watching some sort of you know, pop culture movie or something like that. But instead they got Scott Morrison on a screen talking to them. So just just remember, in his maiden speech, I derive the values of loving kindness, justice and righteousness to act with compassion and kindness, acknowledging our mm. common humanity. Mm. Yet on the screen with the illegal boat people in Nauru, this is what he had to say. My name is Scott Morrison and I am the new Minister for Immigration and border protection in the new Australian government led by Prime Minister Abbott. You have been brought to this place here because you 
have sought to illegally enter Australia by boat. The new Australian government will not be putting up with those sorts of arrivals. You have been brought here to have your claim assessed, if you have one, and that will be done by the host government. That government will make the decision about whether you have a valid or invalid claim. If you have a valid claim, you will not be resettled in Australia. You will never live in Australia. If you are found not to be a refugee, you will remain in this camp until you decide to go home. You should know that the government's will will not change on this issue. You will remain here until you go home or you are resettled somewhere else other than Australia. If you wish to go home now, then you can raise your request with the officials who are here in this facility and they will put you in touch with the IOM who can arrange your transfer back to your home country. If you choose not to go home, then you will spend a very, very long time here. And so I urge you. It goes on, but there you go. Acknowledging dripping humanity. With, <laughs> dripping with compassion. I mean, he doesn't have any compassion at all. You know, it's, I, I've I, said it before, it would be a prick of a job to be the immigration minister. Mm. I wouldn't want it. But don't say you're dripping with, with humanity and, and kindness and then go the in and deliver time. that speech. Yes, that was wrong. You know, that was clearly wrong. But it's ugh, really mm. sickening, isn't it? Mm. You guys are aware of what a shithole country Nauru is? Mm. Absolutely it is, yeah. I mean, because we we dug it up and brought it over here for phosphate, yeah. Yeah. So It's also quite corrupt, isn't it? The, oh, yeah. So yeah, they basically, it's appalling. At, at one stage, it was one of the richest countries on earth. Yeah, because of all yeah, the phosphate mining. Yeah. So they were digging up essentially bird poo mm. in the form of phosphate and making a fortune from it, dug it all up and sold it off and, well, what do we do now? Yeah. So then they started a whole system of, um, of, of a banking system for people to flush Russian money through. So they were just scamming the world of tax receipts by letting people flush money through a made-up bank system. For for ten thousand dollars, you could you could start a bank in Nauru and do whatever you liked. It was an appalling country. And then they've got they've just wasted that money on things like crazy investments. Um, the government invested in a. Um, in a musical and other stupid things. So they've had a really appalling government in that country. And yeah, it, it's really and disgusting. In mm. the middle of the island now is just a desert where they've dug up the phosphate and mm. it's just just a hole in the ground. It's It's got an appalling history, that country. So... Yeah, that's and that's really. why they rely on... That's why they rely on the money that the Australian government gives them to yes. host our refugees. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Yep. What they ought to do is they ought to just pack... They've got a... What, there's probably only 10,000 of them, is there? Oh, population. No ruins. Not sure. Uh, I don't know. It's pretty small. It'd be very small. I just think mm. they should bring them over here and just settle them into our country. The no ruins? Yeah. Right, well, along with the illegal boat people as well. <laughs> You're going to leave them there on their own without the, even the no ruins? No. You're going to allow the no ruins in, but not the boat. <laughs> no, I... I... <laughs> 
I take your point that you raised last week where you said that you've got to let them in now because they've been there for that bloody long. Yeah, I do agree yeah, with and, you. And we've got to proper patrol boats just to, yeah, just we, to turn t- people around. Like, turn people around and that sort of stuff. We've got to keep them, we've got to maintain the strong borders that we've got now, but those that have already slipped through, we might as well bring them in. Yeah. Well, those that aren't accepted by the United States, we should bring in. Yeah. Unless, of course, they fail security checks, in which case then they've got to go home. Yeah. If you're interested in the history of of who stopped the boats, I've got a link to a yes, few articles really interesting, from the John Menadue blog. And people think that Tony Abbott and Scott Morrison stopped the boats. And that's sort of where Scott Morrison burst onto the scene was his hard line with boat people. But when you read these articles from the John Menadue blog, it makes a pretty compelling case that, uh, in fact, it was the Rudd government that stopped the boats. And if anything, the Abbott opposition was responsible for a dramatic increase. So the Rudd government had basically come to an arrangement with Malaysia where Malaysia was going to take all of these boat people. And Abbott refused to agree, so they couldn't get it through the parliament, I think is how that worked. Yeah, it was, it was and, left up to the Greens and they said no. Yeah. And then the opposition said no too, so it fell over. Yep. So in 2011, uh, for the first sort of nine months, the average number of illegal immigrants was in the sort of averaging around 200 to 300 per month. Then when Abbott failed to... Um, support the Malaysian agreement, the number of illegal um, boat people increased dramatically. Uh, 700,000, this is per month, 800, 1,200, 1,600, 2,500, getting up to 3.3 and then 4,200 by July 2013. And at that point, Rudd announced that no illegal immigrants would ever settle in Australia, which is essentially what uh, Morrison was saying in that speech. And at that point, virtually four months later, the number of illegal immigrants had dropped down to 200. So it was, a, it was the policy of Rudd that caused the boats to stop. And then six months after Rudd's announcement, uh, Abbott starts the turnbacks, but essentially it was the, the Rudd government decision that was responsible. So don't fall for the furphy that it was... Uh, Abbott and Mo- Morrison. Oh, Abbott and Morrison, mm. yeah. So there's some links there to those articles. Hmm. Interesting. Um, the chaos caused by the... Catholic Abbott and his Catholic friends <laughs> in the Liberal Party is reminiscent of something else, Scott. Would that be? That would be the DLP split away from the ALP <laughs> when it was the Catholics in the ALP that caused all sorts of dramas for them. Listen, I was raised a Catholic. They're <laughs> assholes. <laughs> they play for keeps. And one of um, Abbott's Mentors, was it? Was it not Santa Maria? Santa Santa Maria. Maria. Hmm. Abbott would sit at his knee and take it all in Mm -hmm. and say, Bob Santa Maria was the leader of the DLP movement 
which was the Catholic faction within the Labor Party that split off and took votes and and people with them and refused to send preferences back to the Labor Party and instead sent them to the Conservatives, which kept the Labor Party out of power for the better part of 20 years. Mm. So it's not the first time that the Catholics have... And those Catholics who left the Labor Party never returned. They then, having split off with the DLP, they then have found their home in the Liberal Party and that's where they are now, causing all sorts of mischief. Mm -hmm. So if I was the Labor Party, good riddance, I would say. Yeah, absolutely. It Mm. it really should be good riddance to them because, you know, this is why I can't understand Bill Shorten making the statement that he did at the Batman by-election saying that he stands shoulder to shoulder with the bishops. It makes absolutely no sense whatsoever. Mm, Especially in light of the um, child abuse scandal. (laughs) Exactly. You know, when they come down there begging, you know, the begging bowl and that sort of stuff, you ought to just look at them and say Royal Commission, you know? Mm. Anyway, it makes me physically ill. Mm -hmm. One final article before we move on to other topics would be that in Queensland... The youth branch of Queensland's Liberal National Party is calling on its state parliamentarians to reject abortion laws introduced into state parliament this week. It is understood a motion opposing the government's proposed laws to decriminalise abortion in Queensland and calling an opposition M- calling on opposition MPs to support their position was passed at the Young LNP State Council meeting at the Gold Coast. Young LNP are against modernising abortion laws. What sort of people are... Where do they find these people? Well, just, they're the... Um, they're the Local Hillsong Church? Yeah. Well, they must do. But they are just the little kids that, you know, are members of the Liberal Club, blah, 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 blah. Yeah. Anyway, it's... They have genuinely been more conservative than the adult party. Have they? Yeah, absolutely. Really? Yeah. I mean, they, they traditionally, traditionally, yeah, really? yeah, they're probably in favour of becoming a republic and that sort of thing. But on everything else, no, they right. are probably more conservative, which makes no sense whatsoever. But anyway, that is what that's it is what it is. When you were in the Liberal Party, did people pay attention to the Young Liberals? No. Ah, okay, <laughs> right. We didn't. Okay. We didn't pay any attention to them. I, I, well, there was one uh, discussion I was having with a councillor once who said that uh, occasionally they'll. Occasionally they'll wake up and they'll slap you in the face with something that's ideologically ground and that sort of stuff that you've got to listen to. But generally speaking, they didn't. Yeah. Yeah. So are the, the youth wing of the uh, LNP, are they the sort of basket weavers of the well, yeah. party? Yeah, exactly. Mm. Yeah. But, you know, that, that, it didn't surprise me when you sent that article through. I thought to myself, yeah, that's them all over. You wow. Know? Yeah. Okay. Right. Uh, completely different now. And... We've just got a couple of little articles before we wind up. The, and this comes from my subscription to The Australian, which I'm still smarting over, but anyway. <laughs> University of Adelaide is the latest institution to resort to a special exception under the Equal Opportunity Act to advertise women-only positions, uh, a move that could otherwise be seen as discriminatory and incur penalties. They've advertised for eight senior positions in the Faculty of Engineering, Computer and Mathematical Science, 
all at the level of associate professor and lecturer, and all for women only, because basically they don't have enough women in those positions. So in order to get enough women, they are advertising women-only positions. Twelfth man? I'd like to know if they have enough redheads in that department. Right. Yeah. Do you think? Don't know. Probably don't keep statistics on that. Why not? Diversity is good, isn't it? Can we just accept that culturally and just biologically there might be preferences that people don't... Women maybe don't want to necessarily be as active in those... Subjects as other subjects. I mean, do they have a similar thing in the in the education sector, for example? I wonder. I mean, we've where perhaps is dominated by females in the primary school education sector. Not like, only in well, primary schools, even high schools are becoming yeah. pretty much dominated by females. Yeah, yeah. there are a lot of female um, principals and deputy principals. You oh. know, could it just be preference? Yeah, so, surely. And can we just allow preference to work? No, no, wrong? no. We have to have exactly equal male and female in every single field of endeavour. It must match the general population perfectly. Absolutely. No, I think we should do a survey and, you know, just really come to grips with how many people have black hair, blonde hair, red hair, and make sure there's an even distribution throughout every field of human endeavour. No, let's not do that. Um, I didn't understand why the hell they had to advertise this as for women only. Surely they could have just gone through the applications and knocked back the women, knocked back the men's applications. Are they allowed to do that? Because apparently women feel uncomfortable even applying for jobs where they're not competitive enough. This is is what the article says. Yeah, I know. I read that. and, And that by making it women only, that would encourage them to apply. I disagree with that most violently because, (laughs) no, you have got to accept that we have got to accept as a society the equality of men and women. And that means that we do not give anyone an extra leg up. You do not have a women's only advertisement that you run. You run it as a gender neutral advertisement. And then if you wish to employ women, you go through and you weed out all the men. Are you suggesting that specifically advertising for females only is not gender neutral? Scott, is that what you're saying? (laughs) That's exactly what I'm saying, Paul, yes. (laughs) (laughs) Like, at times, there can be good reason. And we talked before about Sheba, the women-only Uber service. Yeah, I know. that's I can understand that one. Advertised for female-only drivers, Mm -hmm. that's okay. You've got a case to make. They're they're only servicing women and that sort of thing. And and there's a legitimate reason why there. It's a public safety issue. Yes. Which is understandable. But I refuse to believe that you should be making an arrangement that enables women to feel more comfortable to apply for a job that is advertised. You've got to, you, we've got to treat everyone equally and that means, and this is why I don't understand why you go through and you get these, why there's a difference in salaries for men and women in the same job. Yeah. I do not understand that. And it was explained to me once by a woman who said to me, well, women just aren't as good at negotiators. I said, well, you're going to have to become as good as negotiators as men. Conduct 
courses and provide training to help people become assertive in those areas. Yes. If that's, if that's what's needed. And if that's yeah. what they want. So, yeah. So... Well, I think, do, you should, I think that, they should have that sort of thing open to them. And you should open it up to both men and women so that you can say that you can come in here and learn how to be a better negotiator for your salary. Mm. Yeah. Okay. But is it even legal to advertise for females only? Well, this is what they're saying. They've got an exemption for yeah. it. Oh, they've got an exemption? Yeah. Yeah. On what grounds? Well, because they got to try and balance the gender, gender inequality in their, in their it's department. It's a very shaky argument, isn't it? I would have thought so, but yeah, clearly not. They've got the exemption, which makes no sense whatsoever. Well, look, if you know they've set a precedent now, how many others are now going to apply for a, such an exemption? Well, they have, mm-hmm. but they did talk about uh, other institutions in there, in the University of New South Wales, wasn't it? I, I don't know. I've closed the window now, so you'll have to help me out. I can't get back to it. What's next, Trevor? Um, Apply for, you know, advertise for women only for the um, SAS, you know, because it's already dominated by men. Surely we need a bit more gender balance in the SAS, don't we? Here it is. Uh, University of Melbourne was one of them. And I thought it was in New South Wales and University as well. University of Newcastle had created three new women in STEM adding medicine to the mix. Mm. Mm. Dangerous, dangerous precedent. I think it really was very dangerous and it was something that the university will regret one day Mm. because all they're doing is infantilising people and that sort of stuff and they're giving them a a leg up when they don't deserve a leg up. Or they possibly don't even want it. Well, this is the whole point. You're coming back to what Trevor said. He Mm. said, you know, there there could be a genuine shortage of women. See, I know in the mining industry, for example... BHP and Rio and companies like that have got some pretty extreme internal policies for advancing <clears throat> women through to upper management, such that now if you're a bloke, you know, engineer or whatever, you've probably got to move out of those companies if you're hoping to progress into upper management and, and get to, go into some other field because any of the jobs that are going are are being given to females. So mm. it's ex- extremely disheartening for guys in those jobs who are being overlooked because of... And, and women with zero experience in the mining industry are putting in char- are being put in charge of teams of people uh, when they've got no experience and virtually no qualifications but other than, other than their chromosomes. So... Yeah, it's, could, it's um, forcing people, good people, out of those herald companies. Herald um, an increase in um, what do they call it? Sex reassignment F- among well, to, <laughs> to get a job promotion. <laughs> I don't think engineers. I don't think anyone's going to actually volunteer to have it cut off no. like that. So no, well, it could advance your career. <laughs> Perhaps if you just identify. But yeah, I, you know, no, good point. Uh, final article, uh, assisted dying, voluntary euthanasia. That's going to be more and more in the news. And you might hear the story about in Belgium, uh, children aged 9 and 11, the youngest ever to be euthanised. And um, 
the unnamed miners were administered lethal injections in Belgium, which has uh, the world's only law allowing terminally ill children in unbearable suffering to choose to die. Their deaths, which occurred in 2016 or 2017, were revealed in a report uh, with a commission that regulates these things. And Belgium amended its law in 2014 to make that possible. Um, the Obviously, the children must have mental capacity and their parents must consent. And Luke Prout, a member of the CFCEE, said that um, he defended the decision and he said, I saw mental and physical suffering so overwhelming, I thought we did a good thing. Um, for euthanasia to proceed in Belgium, doctors must first verify that a child is in a hopeless medical situation of constant and unbearable suffering that cannot be eased and which will cause death. So you might hear that story, and it's true, and it seems if I was a... Nine or 11-year-old in that position, I'd be hoping that that option would be available. Mm, sad, but necessary. It is It is very sad when you read the numbers, mm. you know, 9 and 11. Yeah. When I first read that, I thought to myself, this is barbaric. But then you do read the article and that type of thing and you then really think about it. And I think that, you know, the parents would have to be involved in the decision, wouldn't they? Yeah, and, and the parents are the ones who know what their children are going through. Don't doctors already allow um, children born severely um, deformed or dis, um, what's the word? Uh, you know, with severe um, conditions that are, are going to inevitably end in a, either a, a very short life anyway, or a life of extreme impairment don't they already allow such babies to die with the parents sort of consent um i wouldn't have thought in australia hmm. i wouldn't no. have thought so i think uh hmm. i think they could withhold room. medical treatment perhaps that's not, that's what i mean yeah, yeah withhold medical treatment which is sort different to consult the parents and say look you know sadly we we don't see very good prospects for this child Shall we withdraw um, support? You know, withdraw. Yeah, which is whatever. a different thing to applying a lethal injection. Yes, it is different. Yeah, that's true. I think that's what happens. Yeah, yeah. I think it's crueler because you're going to allow that child to starve to death. Well, it's not necessarily withdrawing food, but it might be that they need some antibiotic or they need some mm. other uh, breathing, yeah. for example, um, some sort of artificial breathing or something like that. Yeah. Perhaps I'm, I'm not sure how that works. Yeah, don't know how they go about withholding life-preserving mm. uh, treatment. So, do you do you envisage this happening in Australia anytime soon? Not the children one. Mm. But we We're won't still be game struggling to do with, that. Uh, with adults, aren't we? Yeah, but uh, once they get used to it, um, you never know down the track. Hundred mm. years time, maybe. Who knows? Well, but see, Belgium's had euthanasia, voluntary euthanasia for adults for decades, haven't they? Don't know, have they? Uh, yes, been quite a while. Yeah, quite a while. So that's like you said, you know, you just got to give the population time to get used to it. Mm. Yeah. I can't see it happening anytime soon, but I do think it will happen one day. Mm. Well, there you go, dear listener. Um, 
at some stage we normally run through our patrons. I'm sorry, patrons, I haven't got the list in front of me, but your support is much appreciated. And uh, if you're new to the podcast, welcome aboard. Have a look through the back catalogue. Have a look at what we normally talk about. We're very Aussie political in this one, I'd say. We're pretty much over it now. We're done and dusted on the whole fiasco. So next yeah, week we'll next be back, week we'll to, back our, to normal, our yeah. normal uh, potpourri of different articles. And, uh, well, we'll be with you then. So until mm. then, uh, thank you for, for listening. Thank you very much for listening. Bye now. See you guys. Well, dear listener, did you enjoy that episode of the podcast? If you did, I've got a favour to ask. Uh, first up, tell some friends. Let them know about the podcast. You'll be discussing something at some time and you might be repeating something I've said. And when you're talking to your friends, say, hey, I heard this on this podcast and it's worth listening to. And maybe pick an episode that you think's a good one and direct them to it. Like grab their phone and go to their podcast app and search for Iron Fist Velvet Glove and subscribe <laughs> on their behalf, on their phone, and uh, and just put the word out. The other thing is you could become a patron and support the show. So if you go to our website, you'll see a link to Patreon, and there are some different options for subscribing and paying per episode. And really, the amount that you pay depends on what you get from the podcast. So there's different levels ranging from $1.50 Australian to, I think, $10 and various ones in between. It's really, what do you think it's worth? Is it worth a cup of coffee? Uh, Is it worth more than that, less than that? Whatever you get out of it, because not everybody gets the same. Maybe you don't listen to the whole thing. Maybe you never talk about it with people. Maybe... You really couldn't care less half the time whether the podcast is there. It just it'll be different for everybody. So if you get a lot out of the podcast, contribute a bit more. If you don't get much, contribute less. But in any event, you can subscribe there. If you don't like the idea of a regular subscription, the website has a link to a PayPal donation. So you could just do a one-off donation every now and again. So there you go. It'd be good to uh, spread the word, get a few more listeners And that way, look, if we ended up getting more listeners and more money, we could do maybe a second episode or more special episodes, provide some more content. So it's up to you. If you think it's worthwhile, let people know. Thanks.